We uh, come in our gospel harmony to the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is found in all four gospels, and there's quite a few verses here. So, as a result this morning, I'm going to read uh, my own harmonized account of all four of these passages. You can turn to any one of the four and read along, and you'll find that there are details that I'm going to be adding that just come from the other accounts. And so I'm just reading a conflated account from all four Gospels. So you can pick any one of those. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Luke 19, verses 29 through 44. Or John 12, verses 12 through 19. And you can read there as I read a harmonized account of those four passages. And they neared Jerusalem and came into Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately upon entering you will find a donkey, having been tied in a colt with her, on which no man has ever yet sat. Having loosed it, lead it to me. And if anyone might say to you anything, you will say that the Lord has need of them immediately, and we'll send it back here. Now immediately, he will send them. Now this happened that it might be fulfilled what has been spoken through the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey and on a colt, the son of a donkey. Just as it has been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes, having sat upon a donkey's colt. These his disciples did not know at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these were written about him, that these were done to him. And they departed and found a colt having been tied at the door outside on the street, and they untied it. Now, as they untied it, the owners of it said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Now, they said that the Lord has need of it, just as Jesus said, and they permitted them. Now, the disciples, having proceeded and having done just as Jesus directed them, led the donkey and the colt and laid them upon them their garments, and Jesus sat on them. Now much of the crowd spread their coats on the road, while others were cutting leafy branches from the trees and were spreading them on the road. Now becoming near already on the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began rejoicing to praise God with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had been seeing, saying, Blessed is the one coming, the King in the name of the Lord, in heaven peace and glory in the highest. Now the crowds, the ones going ahead of Him and the ones following after, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to Him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And answering, he said, I say to you, if these will become silent, even the rocks will cry out. And as he came near, having seen the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things of peace, but now they have been concealed from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade to you, and surround you, and hem you in on all sides, And they will tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave stone upon stone in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And having entered into Jerusalem, all the city was shaken, 
saying, who is this? Now, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus, who is from Nazareth of Galilee. Therefore, the crowd was bearing witness. The ones being with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. For this also the crowd met him because they heard that he had performed the sign. Therefore, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are profiting nothing. Look, the world has gone away after him. And he entered Jerusalem and into the temple. And having looked around at everything, being already the evening hour, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for our King, the Lord Jesus. How glorious to be able to spend this morning considering what we have historically remembered as the triumphal entry. May you better equate, uh, equate us with it, Lord. May we know the story all, all the better. And may it draw us to see all the more the glorious nature of Jesus Christ. Pray this in His name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why there is so much interest in royalty? I mean, even today in countries where there's maybe a monarchy still set up, but the king and queen don't really have any big push or pull on governmental affairs. There's still a big hubbub when it comes to royalty. Disney, for example, has made a killing off of this concept. The idea of princes and princesses and kings and queens. And whenever there's a new king or queen installed, we become fascinated with the pageantry that's associated with coronations. Now, it's true that some may care more than others, but... I'd just like to put out the question this morning, why do we care at all? Why do we care at all about kings and queens? Isn't that something from a bygone day and that's gone and over with? Why do we care still about stories about kings and queens and princesses and princes? Why are we still fascinated with these stories? Perhaps there's something about the concept of kings and queens that still grabs our attention because deep down inside of all of us, we recognize that we're all servants of a king. We were made ultimately to worship and bow down before one king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And while we might give respect and honor, and we might even look up to some modern earthly kings and queens, those who have done a good job ruling, those who have upheld justice and been merciful and gracious. There is no earthly king that can come close to our heavenly one. That is Jesus Christ. And no matter how spectacular a kingly procession might be at any coronation that's ever been thrown throughout the history of humanity, the greatness of the event that we look at this morning is far superior to all of it. It won't be far superior in external ritual. You'll find some places of far greater decadence than what happened on Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry. But you will never surpass the event. Why? Because of the honor of the one whose greatness was displayed during this traveling to Jerusalem. This morning, our study in the life of Christ comes to the first day 
in the week of Jesus' passion. We're now in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the Gospel writers give us a disproportionately large amount of information on the last week of Jesus' life. That in and of itself should say something about the importance of these events. Think about it. The events surrounding and leading up to Jesus' birth take up a couple of chapters at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. Okay? We have one account of Jesus in his childhood when he's left behind in, in, in Jerusalem and he's there at the temple, remember, and he's interacting with the religious leaders. And then over the last few years, we've been looking at three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we still have about a third of the gospel material still left. If you count up chapters that we haven't gotten to in each of the four books, we've got about a third of the material still remaining to work through. That means for this last week of Jesus' life and the aftermath of that, we're going to be spending one-third of the gospel harmony looking at this final week in Jesus' life. We're going to be granted backstage passes to see Jesus interacting with his disciples, final teachings, final actions. And we're also going to notice how Jesus is received and or rejected by the religious leaders and the general populace around him. Now, Jesus has said in Luke 13, verses 34 and 35, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said in Luke 13, you're not going to see me until next time when you see me. And you'll be saying this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now is the time for Jerusalem to see Jesus. And this event marks a remarkable change in Jesus' public policy. Up to this point, Jesus has followed a course which saw him retiring away from public view. He traveled out into the wilderness often. He requested that little news be spread about miracles that he'd performed. Remember when some of his brothers approached him and said, Hey, let's go up to Jerusalem for the feast. Jesus says to his brothers, My time has not yet come. He wouldn't make a grand entrance on that occasion. He told his disciples to not tell anyone who he was when Peter had said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus adjures them to be quiet regarding that fact. When Peter, James, and John saw the events of the transfiguration, Jesus tells them regarding the glory that they saw of his to not say anything about it until he had risen from the dead. But now we see that the messianic secret is ready to be given a wider audience. The time for secrecy is over. Now, a bold proclamation regarding Jesus' Messiahship will be announced. And from this moment, we're within a week of Jesus' crucifixion. With that in mind, can you see the wisdom behind Jesus' exhortations that wide news not be spread regarding, his cruci- regarding who he was? As soon as this public notice gets made, things travel forward in haste. I'm going to ask the question, Why the drastic change in public policy? All four Gospels make that answer very, very clear. The the events that are unfolding here were in direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Even the timing of these events were in specific fulfillment of God's timetable for His Son. Everything that Jesus did was being done in obedience to God the Father, and the time for Jesus' sacrifice was now drawing near. Jesus 
would not be found hiding from this hour, for it was for this hour that he had come. And Jesus here ensures that a decision is made regarding him by the religious leaders. He not only makes a royal procession into Jerusalem, but we'll see after this, he goes into the temple and cleanses it again. There's no mistaking that Jesus has arrived. And he's here, and it's impossible to miss his arrival. Will the Jewish leaders and those who listen to them repent? That's a question that we're asking. Will they believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ? Or will they persist in their unbelief, rebellion, and their murderous plots? They've done it on another occasion. Just tell us openly. Tell us openly who you are. Well, here it is. Yet again. Does that make any difference? Does that change their murderous intentions? Interesting as well that the Pharisees have been plotting, asking, if anybody sees Jesus coming up here during the time of Passover, you need to let us know immediately about his whereabouts so we can come and arrest him. Well, Jesus' actions here make that completely futile. First of all, you know that they couldn't have taken Jesus a moment before it was his time anyway. This is evidenced by the fact that they had tried to seize him on other occasions and Jesus just slips away, away from their midst. And we'll see it some more coming up. Nor would they need to find him when it became his time because Jesus wasn't going to have anyone take his life from him. Jesus came willingly laying down his life in accordance with his father's plan. Oh yeah, by the way, after having willingly laid it down, he also willingly take it up again. And that's still to come. The religious leader's problem would not be in finding Jesus. Their problem is not going to be, where is Jesus? Their problem, is, as it relates to their intention to arrest him and crucify him, is to find him at a point when he's not surrounded by a mass of people that love him, and are at least singing his praises, at least outwardly. They couldn't risk a popular uprising against their own leadership, so they would have to plot for a moment where they could catch Jesus by himself. And for that, they'd have to find an ally on Jesus' inner circle. More on all of that to come. Dwight Pentecost explains, This then was the day of Christ's official presentation of himself as Messiah to Israel. Christ was identified as Messiah at his temptation. His glorious Messiah was revealed at his transfiguration, but it was at his triumphal entry that Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. And Jesus' presentation of himself here calls for a response. And not only from a response, for a response from the people that were there present, but from us as well. And in a sermon entitled, Receiving the King, I'd like to point out both the triumph and the tears of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. Both the triumph and the tears of Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. And I want to call us to respond to him in a manner that is fitting his position as king. So first of all, we'll look at a triumphal entry. Second of all, we'll look at a tearful entry together. First, point number one, a triumphal entry. And with each of these, I want to just highlight two perfections that we see in Jesus as a result of the events. First, a triumphal entry. And I want us to see, first of all, the majesty of Christ. The majesty of Christ. There is a remarkable contrast between the typical decadence that is associated with a king's coronation and the welcome that Jesus receives here on this day. Typically, the high ritual is accompanied with visits from high-ranking officials. 
skilled musicians, all the popular people would be there. Appearing at the event would be ornate carriages and stately horses and limousines. Think about the transfers of power in monarchy today even seen. Think about, I know we've got even coming up a new Pope selection in the Vatican and all the pageantry that associates with that. There's a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. Not a lot of times all that much substance in all of it, right? There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. Well, here we have a quite different situation. Oh, by the way, John MacArthur points out that at Queen Victoria of England's coronation in 1838, she wore a crown encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires surrounding a 309-carat diamond. Her scepter was capped with an even larger diamond cut from the Star of Africa and weighed 516 and a half carats. Now, there is some decadence, right? There is some decadence. The public setting that we're going to see for Jesus' riding to Jerusalem is quite different. But what, in, but, but what I want to ask here is what indications about this journey, this little trip, mark it truly as majestic? What gives the majestic feel to this? What makes it so triumphant? Because we're looking at the moment, and the things associated with it seem quite meek. So what's so majestic about this? What gives this event so much majesty? Well, simply put, we could say, because Jesus is there. And he is the King of Kings, makes it majestic, no matter what else was there. However, we could say something further than that. And I think it's this. What coronation can ever claim to, be, to have happened, the very manner of it, have, to have happened in accordance with specific prophecies given hundreds of years before. Who can claim that? Who can claim that sort of thing? I want to see four specific fulfillments of prophecy in Jesus' trip to Jerusalem here, which I think mark it as majestic. It has the element of divine all over it, because it would, was prophesied about centuries beforehand. The first of the four is his lineage. You see, birthright has much to do with royalty. Someone must be born into royalty or you have to marry into it. But one way or the other, you have to be associated with the royal family. The angel Gabriel announced to Mary in in the Gospels that she would have a baby and give birth to him and he would be named Jesus. And he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. What is this? This is specific fulfillment of God's promise to David centuries beforehand, in which he said in 2 Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. With every one of David's sons, the question comes, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one who's going to bring that forever kingdom? Is this the one who will reign and whose reign will have no end? But even prior to that prophetic statement, we see that Jesus' lineage for kingship had been prophesied all the way back to Jacob's dying words to his son Judah. In Genesis 49, he said this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, listen to this, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. There's a reference here 
to someone coming from Judah who will rule over all. He'll have the obedience of all the peoples. And there's even a mention of a donkey, donkey's colt there as well. Hmm. What a scene unfolds before us. Just before this, days before this, blind Bartimaeus had cried out, Son of David, mercy me! Son of David, mercy me! Now we see the title, Son of David, being announced by the crowds. Here we have the promised Son of David, the descendant of David, riding into Jerusalem, David's city, at the time of Passover. And he's being greeted by crowds who are laying down their coats and leafy branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna! Save us. Save us now. In accordance with prophetic announcement, David's greater son, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is coming into David's city, Jerusalem. His lineage, specific prophetic fulfillment. Secondly, the timing of the event. The timing of the event is as well As Jerusalem comes into view, Jesus says this in Luke 19, If you had known on this day, if you had known on this day, even you, the things of peace, but now they have been concealed from your eyes. This day. What's so special about this day? Jesus is referring to this day because this day is the specific fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Consider the prophet Daniel Chapter 9 of of Daniel, verse 25, we read this. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, there's been a whole lot of discussion regarding Daniel's prophecy. I'm not going to get into all the particulars and details, However, if we add those two together, seven weeks and 62 weeks, seven plus six is 69, 69 weeks is being referred to here. Literally translated, 69 sevens. The word week there is just implied, but the way that it actually reads is 69 sevens. 69 sevens, seven sevens and 62 sevens. Coming together to 69 sevens. Now, if you, instead of considering those days, consider those to be Years, you have 490 years being spoken to. Or if you consider the Jewish dating system of 360 days in a year rather than our 365, you get to 483 years. Now, there's been elaborate scholarly reconstructions of timelines to indicate that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this day. And by the way, there's a big debate between two datings of Artaxerxes' um, statement that allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. And there's an argument about that. But depending on how you date that, either you get to AD 30 or AD 33 based upon this prophecy. It was precisely the fulfillment of 483 years that were going to span between the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and now Jesus' coming to Jerusalem. Such specific fulfillment of prophecy bears witness to the divine origin of the Scriptures as well as the deity of Jesus Christ. Only he who can see the end from the beginning can speak about what's going to happen in the future like that, centuries before it ever happens. But not only 
his lineage, not only the timing, but the mount. The mount, in other words, what I mean is the manner in which he would come into the city, what he would be mounted upon. Jesus sends two of his disciples to the village opposite his location in Bethany. Tells them that you're going to find a donkey's colt there on which no one has ever sat. Now, there's a lot of debate about this. It's possible that Jesus had prearranged with someone that he's going to need a colt at some point, And he'd given them the password, saying, whenever it is told you that the Lord has need of it, you're going to just give the donkey over. There's several people that believe that this is the situation going on here. The alternative is that Jesus just reveals his omniscience yet again, as he has shown on many occasions, and describes exactly where they're going to find a colt, in what situation, a colt that's never been ridden on before, next to his mother, tied to a post, out in the street, and then he gives them a response that they should give whenever they're questioned about it. Can I just say this? Even if the lending was prearranged, the fact that Jesus knows exactly how this cult will be situated next to its mother, tied to a post, and all the rest, I think still speaks to the fact that this was all ordained by God. Even the manner in which he came into the city was a fulfillment of specific prophecy. Now remember, Jesus had walked for most of his ministry. We have no other occasion in the Gospels where we hear of Jesus riding anything besides a boat. We don't have him riding any animals. Just this one. Certainly it wasn't that he was incapable of making the mile and a half journey up to Jerusalem when he had traveled so many miles before this on foot. It was to bring to pass the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. But it was not until afterward that the disciples would even understand this in its true light. But afterward, they would see it. And we see the Gospel writers quoting from Zechariah chapter 9. We had this read this morning, verses 9 through 11. And listen to this. Listen to it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. He's righteous. He's endowed with salvation. He's able to save. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt. The foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Notice how many details of that prophecy are true of Jesus. He's the king who would arrive and who would himself be righteous and just, perfectly righteous. And he's the one alone who is able to furnish salvation. Salvation happens in and through him and in and through him alone. He would appear riding on a donkey. And not just any donkey, the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. He would come not to make war, but to make peace with the nations. His kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth and prisoners would be set free due to a covenant in blood. Hmm. You see, all of these events happened in specific fulfillment of prophecy. The fourth and final thing that we see is the praise. The praise itself is even pointed to in the Old Testament. 
Here we have King's, King David's greater son coming into the city of David. And as the crowd considers all of his mighty deeds, his miracles, which Jesus has done, they erupt into praise and worship. Old Davidic Psalms come to their lips as they welcome the king. Many theologians point out that the phrases on the lips of the people here are found in the last of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118, forming part of the responses of the people with which the psalm was chanted on certain of the, of the festivals that Jewish, Jewish people celebrated together. And while these statements would be made in accordance with all of the festivals, What's interesting is the specific significance that these take on in reference to Jesus Christ. Listen to it. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. O Lord, do save. That's the word from which we get Hosanna. Do save. Save now, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house. Of the Lord. And then if you just kind of extend your gaze out a little bit there in Psalm 118, you look at the context surrounding it. Look at the few verses before it. You'll find in verse 22 a very well-quoted verse in the New Testament by many writers. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then down in verse 27, just after those statements, we read this. The Lord is our God and He has given us light. Buying the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Incredible. Here, Jesus is addressed as the King, the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. You see, the majesty of this event is seen in just the sheer fact that Jesus is there. He is the King But His majesty is being demonstrated by the specific fulfillment of prophecy. The ride on a donkey's colt taken by Jesus, the descendant of David, on this particular day, and the praise that He received, all specific fulfillment of prophecy. There was nothing haphazard about this journey. It was a triumphal entry. It was majestic. It displayed the majesty of Jesus Christ. And while His majesty is obvious in the triumphal entry, so is His meekness. And that's my second thing to say underneath the first point. The meekness of Christ. The meekness of Christ. I want you to return back to the details of this ride into Jerusalem with me. Okay. So, just as our transportation today says something about us, so did transportation back then. Right? My family has a minivan. We have a minivan not for its status symbol. We have a minivan because it transports lots of kids. And the Lord has blessed us with a few. We're thankful for the minivan. I'm not a huge fan of minivans. My wife kind of likes them. I don't like them very much. But I drive the minivan because it performs a function, a purpose. I own a truck. And a truck I have because it performs a function. It allows me to haul things. There's many times where I get to do that. And I'm very thankful for the help that it provides. When I was at college at A&M, I drove around a Toyota Camry in 1983. It had serious issues with some rust, but the color of it was rust. So it kind of blended in together. I didn't really care what people thought about me. The reason I had the car was because it got me from point A to point B on a little gas. And I did a lot of commuting. But like it or not, what we drive says something about us. And what Jesus wrote on that day said something about Him. 
Jesus comes into Jerusalem not riding on a symbol of war, a horse. He comes riding on a donkey. You see, a horse gave its rider the advantage of swinging down with the sword to dispatch with enemies, right? You've got, like, the high ground advantage wherever you go. You've got speed, you've got agility, and you've got an advantage of swinging down at people as they come. A king rode on a horse because it had that stateliness to it. Here we see Jesus riding a donkey. Not quite the height advantage that a horse provides. Not quite the agility a horse provides. It might not be any more different than an instrument of war than uh, a Volkswagen bug driving out into a tank platoon, right? We'd say, that thing is ill-suited for war. You're driving around and having fun, but you are ill-suited for war. Here's Jesus riding a donkey when most kings rode horses. This prophecy Riding a donkey's colt, according to Edersheim, was meant to introduce, in contrast to earthly warfare and kingly triumph, another kingdom, of which the just king would be prince of peace, who was meek and lowly in his advent, who would speak peace to the heathen, and whose sway would yet extend to the earth's utmost bounds. There is such meekness in Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. He came in meekness when he was born. And he came into Jerusalem in meekness as well. There's definitely majesty there. But there's a whole lot of meekness there as well. Mark tells us further that Jesus told his disciples that he would return the donkey immediately after having used it. What humility is present in Jesus? I mean, Jesus lived his whole life in utter poverty. He wants to make an illustration regarding a coin. And he says, show me a denarius. <laughs> Ever caught this? Why did he have to say show? Wouldn't he just pull it out of his pocket? It almost seems like he doesn't have any. right? Show me a denarius. Whose inscription's on it? Caesar's is. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And now to fulfill prophecy, he has to borrow a donkey. It's not even his own. To borrow a donkey to go into Jerusalem. Maybe check that last statement. It was his own. We know that he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet, here he is, borrowing a donkey. For that matter, he was born in a borrowed stable, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. What makes this meekness so fascinating is that no charge of thievery could ever be associated with these actions. Had Jesus just taken the donkey, nobody could call him a thief because it was his. He owns everything. Everything is ultimately his. Everything is ultimately Jesus' property. And in this, Jesus provides such a foil to Israel's kings. What is one of the problems that the kings of Israel fall into over and over and over again? They multiply for themselves horses. They multiply for themselves horses. And here is he, the king of kings, who not only doesn't own even one horse, but not even a donkey. He borrows a donkey. He selects a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on. We're further told that the donkey that Jesus selects is one that hasn't been broken in. It's never been ridden on before. 
What are donkeys famous for? Yeah, stubbornness. I heard that out there. Stubbornness. Yeah, they're famous for that. There's been actually some studies. I was looking at this a little bit. There's been some studies on the stubbornness of donkeys. There's some scholars that are trying to say that they're not as stubborn as you think they are. Uh, they're trying to claim that they're actually smarter than horses, and so they don't just follow whatever the person says. Who knows? But we know that they are stubborn animals. Right? We want them to do something they don't obey. They have that tendency. And a lot of times that tendency becomes even more heightened when you get into dangerous situations. That's why you don't ride a, a donkey out into battle. Right? It's not going to help you at all. You're going to be fighting the donkey and you're going to kill. So here we have an unridden on donkey, uh, the son of a donkey, a colt of a donkey, and this donkey has never been ridden on, and now he's escorted into probably the most people that donkey had ever seen in his entire life. And here's Jesus sitting on this donkey. Sometimes I don't think we take a, take a moment and contemplate that moment, you know. I think it's such a great manifestation of the fact that Jesus exercises perfect dominion over creation. He can sit on an unbroken-in donkey and ride it right on into Jerusalem. Well, there's all these people, and the road is flooded with distractions. There's branches being laid down in front of it, coats and all the rest. And here goes the donkey just on down the road as Jesus sits upon it. Jesus wouldn't be conformed to this world or this world's standards. Everyone else would have said, if you want to make a statement about your kingship, you go on a horse. Jesus, in obedience to his Father's plan and will, rides in meekness on a donkey into town. No one could mistake Jesus' intentions here. And I'm sure that's the reason why the Romans weren't all that up in a fuss about Jesus. If he rode in on chariots and stuff of that nature, maybe there'd be a different story. But he's riding in on a donkey. That's laughable. This guy is no king that's going to mess with our rule. Probably so thought the Romans. But there's some other people in the crowd that are worried. We'll talk about them in a minute. Also notice that Jesus not only rides in on a donkey... But because the donkey's never been ridden before, he rides in on a makeshift saddle. What do the disciples have to do? They're taking off their own jackets to put it onto the donkey so Jesus has something to ride on. There's not even like a riding blanket there. Here's a couple of pieces of garments. Sit on that, Jesus. And Jesus sits upon it. And for that matter, when's the last time you ever saw Hollywood roll out the red carpet and it be just people's clothing being dropped down as the celebrity walks down the aisle, Right? What, what happens here? This is, Jesus gets a red carpet treatment, but it's with leaves and branches and people's coats. What humility our Savior demonstrates. I think we just get a little taste of it here. It's all over the place in this ministry, but you understand why Paul can say in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, took on human flesh and died the most horrible death. Jesus' humility and meekness is so evident. And I dare say that's part of His triumph. We've seen His triumph. We've seen the triumph, a, a triumphal entry. I now want to consider what makes this also a tearful entry. A tearful entry. Point number two, a tearful entry. And for this, again, I want to see two qualities in Jesus, two perfections of His character. First of all, His compassion. Note with me the compassion of Christ. 
Perhaps the disciples in the general crowd by this point are like, yes, finally, finally we're getting what we've been looking for. I mean, finally Jesus is taking the accolades that he should have. Remember, there's other occasions where they're like, let's go and make him king after he feeds the 5,000. Let's go make him king. And Jesus retreats away to the mountains. Here he's finally coming into Jerusalem. Here's the moment. And suddenly the city of Jerusalem sweeps into view as they're traveling through this hilly, mountainous terrain. They come up up onto a hill and they see the city of Jerusalem. And amidst all this cheerful exuberance, Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. And we're not talking tears of joy. We all know that, right? We all know what it is. Oh, this is so great, right? It wasn't what it was. The Greek word here indicates full sobbing and wailing. Jesus begins wailing. This seems so inappropriate. It didn't, Jesus knew what Ecclesiastes There's a time to weep and there's a time to rejoice. Isn't this a rejoicing time? Everyone's happy. And then the king weeps. Why does Jesus sob like this? Well, thankfully, he tells us. Jesus explains in Luke, if you had known on this day, even you, the things of peace. By the way, that in itself is really interesting. The word Jerusalem, part of the actual word of Jerusalem means peace. He says, you, Jerusalem, don't know the things of peace. You, the city of peace, don't know peace. But now, they have been concealed from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies when they will set up a barricade to you and surround you and hem you in on all sides. And they will tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave stone upon stone in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Think of that moment. Up the hill, Jerusalem shining in all of its decadence and glory. Jesus begins weeping and says, this city is going to be torn apart. Not even one stone left upon another. In the midst of all the celebration, there's Jesus weeping and wailing over what's about to happen to Jerusalem. You see, while this meeting with Jerusalem did indeed mean that great prophecies were about to be fulfilled, the hope that the general populace had regarding what was about to happen would be quite um, upset. Because their ultimate expectations were misdirected. The Messiah King had not come to set up an earthly kingdom whereby Rome would be overthrown and its dominion decimated. He came to do battle with sin and death and grant freedom from sin and the devil. Jesus hadn't come to make war with Rome. He came to grant peace with God to people. But that wasn't the peace that Jerusalem was longing for. And as a result, since they missed their visitation, the very thing they hoped to prevent would come to them. And yet here we see Jesus. Such compassion. His compassion towards sinners is so evident here. He knows what's about to happen. The rest of this crowd is clueless. He knows what's about to happen when he goes into that city. He knows that in just a few days, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to get a mock of a trial, and then he's going to be crucified. And he sorrows here over the coming destruction of this city. Partly because he's saddened by the hard-hearted, ungrateful people who rejected him, 
who was their prophet, priest, and king. Reminds me of Jesus' response to that rich young ruler. Remember, it says that he felt a love for him. He, he had a pity for that man. Even though he walks away because he had great riches and he wouldn't give him up to follow Jesus, he still loved that man. And similarly here, he loves sinners. And sin brings with it massive consequence. And that consequence is one which the Lord will follow through on in His holiness and justice. But there's a sense in which He doesn't delight in it. You're familiar with these texts. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? You see God pleading with Israel, turn back from this. I'm going to bring swift destruction upon you, but I'd rather it not. I'd rather you turn back from the wicked ways. Why die like this, Israel? Now, it's not that God begrudges judging evil. All of God's ways are good, and therefore He takes pleasure in accomplishing all of His sovereign will, which includes bringing injustice to justice. Yet, God's love is such that there's a sense in which He doesn't delight in punishing evil for its own sake, but rather desires that people turn from their wicked ways and live. God has proved this reality by sending His Son. He could have left us all. We were already condemned. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world already stood condemned. He could have meted out, God could met out His perfect justice Kill us all, throw us in hell, and he'd be completely just. There'd be no unfairness to that. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his Son, a means by which we could be forgiven and enjoy relationship with him. God's desire that the wicked be saved went to the fullest extent, even to the point of giving his own beloved Son that we might be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I'll tell you one thing that sinners will not be able to object to God in the day of His visitation, in the day of judgment. They will not be able to say to God, you have not been merciful. They will not be able to say that you are not a gracious God. For God putting up with sinners for any second of time is already a display of His marvelous mercy and grace. You see, Jesus continually demonstrated love and compassion towards sinners, even those who remained resolute in their rejection. Yes, he had strong words for them. But he could still weep over them. He could weep over a city that would reject him. How about you? Do you weep over family members that reject Jesus? Do you weep over co-workers that reject Jesus? Do you weep over neighbors that do? How about this? Do you weep over enemies of yours that reject Jesus? Jesus is found weeping in the middle of this triumph parade. And you see, what's so sad is that the very thing that the religious leaders are hoping to prevent... Ultimately, we see how the scheming goes. If we can turn over Jesus as the leader of this rebellion, maybe we can push away Rome's glare at us and we'll be able to set up our own thing here. Jesus ends up telling him right here, right now, 
that as a result of rejecting me, your king, the very thing you fear most is coming your way. And Jerusalem is going to be shattered, broken apart. Forty years after this, Rome indeed would come. Titus would lead the Romans in building a barricade around Jerusalem and laying siege to the city. They would utterly destroy it, taking every part of it and smashing it apart. Bodies would be littered all about, blood everywhere. And while these events would unfold as all events, as ordained by God, as an act of His holy justice, nevertheless, Jesus wept in consideration of that coming day. Now, as much as this ending seems like a real downer, it's only if you stop reading at this point. There is great sorrow here, but there's an even greater comfort to come. You see, the people's expectations regarding Jesus would be disappointed. He wouldn't come as the Messiah that they thought He would be. However, the Hosannas, the Save Us, were nevertheless very appropriate because a different salvation had now come. A much greater, a grander, a richer one than the crowds would have ever imagined. We need only look to the comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ. Not only His compassion, but His comfort. You see, regardless of coming events and being filled with tears, this entry was still appropriate because Jesus is King and He deserved every accolade that was mentioned that day and more. Jesus never ceased being King and Messiah. It's just that the path that He would take to the crown wouldn't be apart from the cross. The cross was part of His journey to the crown. It wouldn't be without the suffering of the cross that Jesus would receive the crown of life. Why was all of this necessary? Because God's love was such that He knew what we needed most. Not what we wanted. Not what the Israelites wanted, but what the Israelites ultimately needed. So He gave them not what they wanted, but what they needed. Because their ultimate need is not to be delivered from political and earthly powers, but to be granted freedom from spiritual powers. We need to be set free from sin and death. And that's only possible by the perfect spotless Lamb of God laying down His own life as a sacrifice, as a ransom, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for us. The only way there can be peace in heaven for us to enjoy with God is because God has reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His own Son. Isn't it? Incredible to think about the Passover and the whole point of putting blood over the tops of the doors so that the death angel would pass over your house so your firstborn son would be saved. Here, God the Father does not spare His own Son, but delivers Him up so that we can be saved. This is the love of God. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. And gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus knew about the short term. He knew that within that week, He would be rejected. He knew about His own crucifixion. And He also knew that at AD 70, that Rome was going to come and destroy Jerusalem. He knew all of that. There were tears associated with all of that. But He also knew something else. He also knew that the grave wouldn't be the end. He knew that 
he would be raised from the dead, and he knew that a final restoration was yet to come. It's like a woman who finds out that she's pregnant. I've never been a woman, nor pregnant. But a woman who is pregnant would would feel the joy associated with being pregnant and having a baby inside of her. And there might be a moment in which that joy is eclipsed by the pain of childbirth. There might be a moment where she's like, oh man, what is this? What has happened to me? And maybe for a moment, maybe for a split moment in her mind, she's like, oh man, what's going on? And the pain is so great. And it seems as if all is lost. But then as soon as she holds that newborn baby, everything changes. The joy of that baby far eclipses any pain that ever was experienced before that. And you see, that's how this story goes. There is a sense in which there is joy on this triumph toward Jerusalem. And there were also tears mixed with it. But there's nothing more glorious than a reversal, a complete reversal of all expectations. And there could be no greater resolution to a conflict that has been ever imagined than this one. That in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his seeming defeat was his victory. Jesus would win by dying. He would win by dying. Then suddenly we notice this. That the crowd which acclaimed Jesus as king is merely anticipating a latter day. In which people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be united together as Christ's bride and will be granted joy and rest in His sovereignty for all eternity. One day in the future, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came riding on a donkey to meet with death, only then to defeat sin and death by rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, one day, that same Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. And while he came that first time riding in meekness on a donkey, when he returns, it's going to be on a white horse. He's going to reign. And his glory is going to be displayed throughout the entire earth. And a new heavens and a new earth will be set up. And the wicked will be judged. And will be cast into the lake of fire. And so it is that the momentary weight of the struggles before Jesus, he can look past them to the hope beyond the cross. And so it is for us who are His children. We encounter momentary struggles, present struggles and hardships, but they're nothing to be compared with the weight of glory that is yet to come. You see, the joy of Jesus' first coming would be followed by tears. There would be a joyful moment along this road, but it was followed with tears as they saw Jerusalem. But not so with the second coming. At His second coming... There'll be joy and no longer any tears. So as we close, how will you receive King Jesus? How will you receive Him? Will you interact with Jesus as a spectator on the sidelines? In the crowd that is accompanying Jesus here are a lot of people spectating. They're looking in. They're asking questions. It's quite possible that we have a different crowd here than the crowd that will later shout in the week, crucify him. But it's also possible that some of those people might have interacted with those and might be even present at the latter scene. Some came having heard of Jesus' miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead. Some people had heard of what Jesus had done. Some had laid down leafy branches on the road. A lot of them were hoping for a salvation from political distress. When the city hears that Jesus has come into it, we're told that the city shakes. It's electrified by this. And there's questions. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? 
R.T. Francis pointed out that it might be the reason why they're so concerned is because if something really does start to go that way towards a militaristic thing, then Rome's going to get upset and they're going to be coming their way. The response from the general populace to that question, who is this, is this answer, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. That statement almost seems like a digression or a regression. Going the wrong way. I mean, we just got done saying he's the king. Here's king, here's king David's greater son. He's come. Meanwhile, they find themselves saying, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. It seems that the honor which they had given Jesus was fleeting and superficial in the case of a lot of these people. You see, it's a good lesson for us to learn. It's not enough to just acknowledge Jesus' existence. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, I believe that there is a historical Jesus and that he lived. Although there is a historical Jesus and he lived, it's not enough to believe merely that he lived. But it's also not enough to believe merely that, yes, I believe he did some miracles. I believe he performed some things. It's also not enough to come into a church, to join a church, to sing some songs. It's not enough to be dunked in a baptismal. It's not enough to do any of those things. None of those things in and of themselves save you. The question is whether or not you've submitted to Jesus as your king. Have you submitted to him as your king? That's the question. If you haven't, you need to repent and believe in him, trust in him. Will you be like those spectators? Or will you be like the Pharisees present in the crowd? Will you consider Jesus to be an enemy that needs to be destroyed? Amidst all of that celebration, the Pharisees, chief priests, and scribes aren't happy at all. They'd like nothing more than to not only have a pity party, but reign on the entire parade. They go up to Jesus. They know they're not going to be able to stop the crowd from their shouts of Hosanna. So they approach Jesus and they say, oh, Jesus, tell them to be quiet. Quiet up the crowd. Again, partially could be because they're concerned about what Rome's going to think about this. and Will this have political ramifications to us or militaristic uh, complications? But I think it becomes all the more plain. They just hate Jesus. And so they're not content themselves to just not say anything, but they have to go after people who say something about him. There's people like that today, aren't there? Ever wondered why it is that people do, that don't believe in Jesus get so angry with Jesus? And get angry with people who follow Jesus? Why is it that those who actually live godly lives will suffer persecution? Why is that? Because they're not content to just not like Jesus themselves, but they must push their hate against anyone who follows him as well. Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He corrects them. He says, you know what, guys? If I do that, then all the rocks around here are going to start shouting. In other words, even creation recognizes who I am. While you're blind to this reality, even the rocks, the inanimate objects in this world know who I am. So it must be marked. No matter what you do, you cannot stop the coming of the king of kings. Lesser kings can be fought. You can fight against a lesser king. You can outgun him. You can outman him. You can outsmart him. But you're never going to outgun, outman, or outsmart the king of kings. You're not going to do that to the one who creates with a word. You won't be able to stand up against the one who calls the stars by name. You won't be able to stand up against the one who compares the nations as a drop from a bucket. Or a speck of dust on the scales. You see, should you refuse to receive Jesus as king, you'll suffer the consequences of that rejection just as Jerusalem did. And what played out there is an image of what will play out for everyone who rejects Jesus. The destruction that fell on Jerusalem will fall on you too. And it won't be the first death that's so horrifying. It will be the second. When all those who 
refuse to follow Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. So don't be either of those first two groups. Will you receive Jesus as your king, submitting to him as his disciple? As you had this choice before you this morning, you can reject Jesus as king and receive the wrath that is due you, or you can receive him as your king and be granted peace with God, the peace that only he can offer. Will you, as his disciples did, follow the Lord's instruction obediently and experience your greatest joy in offering to him worship and adoration? Will you, as the owners of the donkey, not resist when you hear that the Lord has need of what you have been entrusted You see, lesser lords surrender to their greater lord. I might have been given an entrustment for a time, but my greater lord calls for it. It's his. Right? At workplace, if you're working for some of your employee, the boss says they want something, what do you do? Here you go. Here you go. Similarly, if we recognize that we ourselves don't have anything, but really we're just ones who have been entrusted with the property of another, we hold all things with open hands, placing everything at the Lord's disposal. Let me ask you this. Would you be delighted to have your coat trampled by the donkey upon which Jesus rode? Would you find it a delight? Take, take the most fancy possession you have. Would you find it a delight to put it underneath the donkey's hoofs so that Jesus could walk across it? Would you lay down everything before Jesus? Would you say because his worth is of such incomparable nature that you would spare no expense to show him worship and adoration? In other words, will you lay down your life? Will you recognize He is worthy of everything you are and everything you have? For it's all been given to you by Him in the first place anyway. If so, you can be assured of this. You're going to have hardship in this life. You're going to have difficulties. No health and wealth gospel here. You're going to have difficulties and hardships and troubles. Just as your Lord and Savior did. But take hope. Because at the end of this life, it concludes with a crown. You'll carry the cross in this life. But the crown is yet coming. And you'll have the blessing of knowing this king who is majestic and meek and compassionate and comforting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your marvelous word. Thank you for the way in which you transform us through the study of it. Thank you for Jesus May you transform us as we contemplate Him. What a glorious Savior and Lord and King He is. He squashes all of our conceptions of what a King must be. And He shows Himself to be far greater than anything we could have ever imagined. Thank You for Your love shown toward us when we didn't deserve it. Thank You for Your mercy and grace poured out, Your long-suffering toward us. And may we, as Your servants, faithfully follow You and tell others about our great King, Jesus Christ, we pray in His name. Amen.